This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is Buzz Tarlow. Our podcast, Construction Law Today, began in July 2019 and is now in its second season. In our first year, we produced 14 episodes on a variety of what we hope were timely and interesting topics in the field of construction law. In our upcoming season, we hope to produce similar podcasts at the rate of about one new podcast per month. As always, we welcome your questions and comments. Please let us know what you think we can do to improve the podcast. The contact information for Construction Law Today is found at the end of this podcast. On behalf of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law, thanks for listening. Welcome to the podcast. Arbitration has become an integral part of the resolution of construction disputes. And on our podcast today, we have two of the most interesting experienced and knowledgeable lawyers in the United States on the subject of construction arbitration. They are John Hinchy, formerly of Atlanta, Georgia, and now of Washington, D.C., and Laura Abrahamson of Los Angeles, California, although she's traveling so frequently, sometimes I'm not sure where she's from. Both are prominent arbitrators with the JAMS organization and have participated in numerous nationally and internationally significant arbitrations. There are, simply put, no two better qualified individuals anywhere to talk about this subject. So John and Laura, thanks so much for being with us. John, let's start with you. I've known you for years. In fact, I took the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators course with you a few years ago, and learned a tremendous amount. You've now developed a reputation as one of the most experienced construction arbitrators in the country, but let's start at the beginning. How did you begin in the construction law practice? Actually, I have a very broad-based legal background. and I used to be concerned that I was doing a little bit of everything, but not enough of anything to be of real value. Uh, But later I discovered that that was the perfect background to practice construction law. And why is that? And that's because a construction lawyer uh, during a career will deal with just about every subject of law uh, that appears in the legal encyclopedias. And as one of my uh, hotel owner clients once told me, uh, everything that happens in life sooner or later happens in a hotel. And I found the same to be true with respect to uh, construction projects. So I found that my broad-based background was actually uh, the ideal uh, preparatory background for, uh, for construction law. Good morning, Laura. Tell us a little bit about your background. Thanks for having me, Buzz. I joined JAMS last fall as a full-time neutral arbitrator and mediator after spending, in addition to almost a decade at big law firms, 25 years in-house leading litigation and arbitration for energy and construction companies. Like John, that put me front and center at both ends of major projects. I spent 20 years in-house at Oxnell Petroleum, 
leading litigation arbitrations nationally and internationally, including what was then the largest ever ICSID award against the Republic of Ecuador. And for the last five years until the fall of 2020, I was a deputy GC and global head of disputes for AECOM, uh, where everything ranged from uh, power plants to hotels to uh, big infrastructure projects. John, bring us forward in time from your humble beginnings as a solo practitioner to a internationally prominent arbitrator. How'd you get there? Well, actually, uh, after about uh, eight years of practice, uh, four of which were with the uh, state attorney general's office, then uh, literally uh, working as a solo lawyer, handling everything that walked in the door, I was really a, at sort of a dead end. It was not very uh, satisfying to me not to be prepared enough to really feel like that I could be competent in handling all kinds of cases. So I took a, a year off and did a sabbatical at Oxford University uh, studying international law. And at that time, one of my friends from Atlanta called and said they're starting a construction practice. And I asked, what's that? And he said, well, we're going to be starting up our new law firm. Would love to have you join us. So um, I decided I needed a real job, came home, joined them, and uh, the rest is history. But uh, that was, you know, about almost 40 years ago when I actually got my beginning with uh, practicing uh, surety law, and that was my background training for the construction practice. Tell us a little bit about some of the projects that you worked on when you were a lawyer. Well, my practice uh, has placed me at both the front and the back end of projects, just like Laura. And that means that about half my work over the years has been transactional and the other half uh, contentious. And frankly, and I used to tell my associates this, I think it takes more creativity to be a transactional lawyer because you have to come up with solutions that all the parties can live with. I mean, or the deal falls through. And um, so early on, my firm started doing construction law seminars. And this was before construction law seminars became cool back in the 70s and 80s. And we recognized that the uh, architects had their lawyers, the contractors had their lawyers, the generals and the subs had theirs, but the owners were not well represented because uh, they were not continually involved in projects. So we devoted a uh, seminar to training owners on construction projects from beginning to end and did seminars all over the country. That was um, actually enabled us to develop a very strong practice in uh, representing uh, owners in construction projects. Laura, take us uh, through a little bit of your uh, transition from a lawyer to an arbitrator. How did that occur? You know, but as a result of my many years in-house, I'm particularly sensitive to the financial, political, and other pressures facing parties and disputes. And while I was in-house, I was actively involved in so many arbitrations, and I really believe that arbitration has a promise for parties to be a much better way of resolving disputes. And that perspective of that sensitive to the financial pressures informs my perspective and my desire to make sure that construction arbitration in particular continues to provide parties with the benefit of the bargain in agreeing to arbitrate their disputes in terms of speed, cost, and flexibility. And after spending a couple of years on the court of arbitration for sport and dipping my toe into the waters on some doping cases as an arbitrator, um, I decided 
it was time to make the move because I think arbitrators and institutions can really make a difference in helping parties continue to achieve that benefit of arbitration by really proactively managing things to improve speed, cost, and flexibility. Well, let's jump into the subject matter by, John, give us a sense of some of the trends that you see evolving in the world of construction arbitration. Uh, I guess, simply put, what do you see going on out there? Well, uh, fortunately, I had the um, opportunity to be around in the uh, late 70s and 80s when the new paradigm for dispute resolution was just developing. And the first one was uh, what I would call phased alternative dispute resolution. In other words, requiring parties to negotiate and mediate before proceeding to litigation or arbitration. Today, we consider that to be the norm, but back in the uh, 70s, that was not the norm. Typically, parties proceeded directly to arbitration. I think that has revolutionized the dispute resolution process in construction projects because it's been very successful. The problem with that is that that has led to only the toughest cases going on to arbitration. We often complain about uh, arbitration becoming too much like litigation. Well, one reason that it does is because that the mediation that settles so many cases, the easier cases, leads to the, uh, the result that arbitration often focuses on the toughest cases. And that's why we see some of the uh, challenges that we often run into with respect to arbitration. That's an interesting uh, point, John. Laura, have you observed something similar? I think that's right. The issue that I see, Buzz, with the stepped arbitration is that you know, while the senior executive meetings, in, in my experience, are often very productive, requiring the mediation before parties go to arbitration in the harder cases, it's often just too early in the process. The parties don't know yet enough about their own case. They don't, haven't learned about the other side's case. And, you know, initially the clients and the senior executives are gung-ho that they did nothing wrong. It's not their fault. The delays are somebody else's. And I think that parties can always go to mediation after an arbitration gets launched, but the mediations might be more productive if they occurred later in the process. And so one of the things that I saw people starting to turn back from the step is not including a requirement that you mediate before you go into arbitration. Well, let me ask you a little bit about a point that occurred to me as you were answering that question, Laura. You hear a lot of uh, people talk about so-called accelerated or fast-track arbitrations. My experience is nobody wants to do them. What have you seen? Well, I think you're right. They think there's a hesitancy by people to agree to them in advance. And that's really, of course, the best time to agree to them because once you're in a dispute, it's hard to get the parties to agree on anything. But, you know, I think in, in England where they do this adjudication, I saw it as pretty effective. That is a very accelerated process. It's not binding in the sense that after, you know, you can you go in a very short time frame. The other side has 20 days-ish to respond, and you get a quick result, which is designed to keep the money flowing in construction projects. It's very effective at that. And then after it's all said and done and the project's over, the parties can go back and re-arbitrate or re-litigate the decision. So it's not binding forever. 
And I think, you know, something like that could be affected here. I know we have dispute resolution boards, but those take more time. It's not really the sort of the quick and dirty process you have over in England. And I do think that that's something that parties can and should explore. John, one of the constant themes that you hear arbitrators talking about is explaining to parties the difference between arbitration and litigation. I know that in my role as an arbitrator, I often talk to people about not replicating the trial court process. But of course, when I'm in the role of a lawyer representing a party, I want to have a chance to develop my case and discover the facts. How do you talk to parties about that? If you're addressing the question to me, I uh, have a little different view with respect to uh, arbitration as necessarily being a model for efficiency and economy. Actually, the original purpose of arbitration was to allow people to develop their own procedure that would fit the particular dispute which they had. In other words, party autonomy. And the parties have it within their control to develop any procedure that they can agree to in order to resolve their dispute. If they want speed, they can have speed. They can arbitrate a case within uh, 60, 90, 120 days, whatever they agree to. The difficulty is that there are certain built-in disincentives to speeding up the case that uh, we need to take account of. One of them is there will almost always be a paying party and a receiving party. Obviously, the uh, paying party wants to put off the day of reckoning for as long as possible. That's not going to change. Then there's the danger of ambush or surprise. No party and no lawyer wants to be surprised by evidence that they were not aware of. So therefore, that requires some investigation. Lawyers want to be fully prepared. They don't want to embarrass themselves in front of their clients. In some cases, a rush to justice can mean that justice is denied. So what I'm saying is there has to be a cost-benefit analysis with regard to uh, fast-track arbitration or any of the other processes that we have developed in order to make uh, arbitration more efficient. There is almost always going to be a cost, either in terms of due process or in terms of uh, economy, with regard to almost any process that we're using to make arbitration more efficient or economical. Let me follow up on that point, John. What's the role of the arbitrator when the parties honestly cannot come to an agreement on issues of process? What should the arbitrator be doing? How much power should the arbitrator exercise? Well, obviously, the arbitrator has the power of decision. I believe, and uh, my understanding of the uh, arbitration process is that the parties essentially own the process. Uh, If the parties can agree as to what that process should be or will be, then I think the arbitrator is bound within the requirements of law and the applicable rules and the contract to implement that process. To the extent that the parties cannot agree, then I think the arbitrator has a duty to decide and make a decision based on uh, what the applicable contract, the rules, and the the law actually uh, requires. So, it, um, it sounds trite to say, but I think it really depends on what the uh, facts and the circumstances are. But uh, some arbitrators tell me that they feel like they have an obligation 
to force the parties to arbitrate a case that perhaps the parties want more time to prepare. And again, I believe, and I think this may be somewhat controversial, but I think the parties own the process rather than the, uh, the arbitrator. Laura, you've, you've written and spoken quite a bit on this issue of construction arbitration being adapted to the needs of the parties. So do you come to the same conclusion John does, or do you see it a different way? I completely agree with John that the parties own the process and that, you know, our jurisdiction as arbitrators is entirely dependent on the contract and the rules the parties have agreed to. And the parties can, by agreement, alter anything about that process. Um, But I do think that arbitrators have an obligation to looking at what the party's contract says and what the rules they've agreed to in advance say, help them manage the process and deliver a cost-efficient result. And I think most of the arbitration rules, the JAMS rules, clearly give the arbitrator discretion to take cost-benefit analysis into consideration, particularly with respect to discovery. But it is a party-driven process. And the problem is, you know, when they're in the midst of the dispute, they often don't agree. What One of the things that I do, because I think lawyers want, as John said, to be prepared. They don't want to ever give up on arguments. They don't want to feel like they've left some stone unturned, understandably. So one of the things I like to do is to get the clients to attend the first procedural conference where you're going to set the schedule and decide some of the process. Because I think clients are in a better position to make that cost-benefit analysis and tell their lawyers I understand we could take more time, but I'm willing to give up some of the theoretical benefits of extra discovery in order to do this in a more cost-efficient way. And when I was the client as the head of disputes at Oxy and Acom, I insisted on attending those first hearings because I wanted to be able to influence my lawyers to agree to shorten times or less discovery when it was a U.S. case. I think the problem is for the default, particularly lawyers who've been litigators all their lives and haven't done much arbitration, is they go to their default, what they're comfortable with. They want to take five depositions, which isn't necessarily in their client's best interest. We'll be back with more construction law today in just a moment. FTI Consulting is a leading global provider of project advisory, construction claims analysis, and expert witness services. As the construction industry navigates the short and long-term impact of the pandemic, FTI Consulting is committed to continuing our longtime support of the ABA Forum on Construction Law and its members. Meet our experts at fticonsulting.com. We're back with Construction Law Today. Our guests are two very experienced and knowledgeable arbitrators, Laura Abrahamson and John Hinchy, both of the JAMS organization. Laura, before we uh, took the break, we were talking sort of about general concepts of framing the arbitration. Let's move from the broad to a little bit narrower. Of course, one of the central issues is how do you save time and money in arbitration? There's a variety of techniques. Let's talk first about cutting discovery down to something as reasonable as possible. What have you seen in that area? 
One of the things, Buzz, that I like to talk to parties about is adopting what's much more common in, in international arbitration, which is the practice of having their direct testimony come in in the form of written witness statements. And the benefit that I see from that is the parties don't need to then take the depositions of those key witnesses because they will have in advance exactly what the direct testimony is going to be. It has a secondary benefit in that it saves time at the hearing itself, because at the hearing, you really only do the cross-examination of the witnesses rather than the direct. So that's one technique to cut down on the deposition side of discovery. The other is to really get the parties to focus on after the the initial disclosures of the documents they intend to rely upon, which is required under the GM's rules, narrowing the electronic discovery in particular, of course, depending on the value and how much is at stake in the case to try and make a correlation between how much is at issue and the cost and burdensomeness of any document discovery. John, let me uh, explore that with you for a minute. Uh, Laura, I think importantly raised the issue of the scope of electronic discovery. How do you deal with that in some of the very large arbitrations uh, that I know you've been in? Well, I think uh, most parties uh, have learned to appreciate the fact that uh, probably 80% of the cost in a construction arbitration has to do with document discovery. And a good portion of that has to do with electronically stored information or ESI. So I think one of the first things that the arbitrators need to do at the very beginning of the case is to discuss with the parties the extent and the scope of the uh, electronic uh, documentation that's gonna be involved in the case, how they're going to go about efficiently exchanging the relevant and material documents and I think that's where the arbitrator needs to take an active role in working with the parties, working with their counsel in trying to make that process as efficient as possible. We're talking about competing objectives. Obviously, the parties want to find everything that they can possibly find, either to prove their case or embarrass the other uh, party. I think the arbitrator needs to be able to play up more of an umpire's role in trying to keep the uh, scope of discovery narrowed to what is really going to be relevant, what is really going to be material to the particular issues in that case. I guess I would, I would ask, John, in those situations where parties are seeking to compel discovery. Have you found it necessary for arbitrators to get involved and in, to enforce rules one way or the other? It's been relatively rare in my experience. Generally, the parties are willing to cooperate with respect to the exchange of documentation. They know that if they resist unnecessarily or unreasonably, that's going to um, have a negative impact on their case. So as between themselves, between the parties, generally they're going to be or appear to be cooperative among themselves. I think the difficulties come in trying to subpoena information and documentation from third parties. And that's where uh, arbitration, I think, can sometimes be at a disadvantage to litigation because we have fewer tools and fewer coercive uh, legal instruments by which we can uh, compel third parties to provide information when they're not willing to do so. Based on your significant international experience, Laura, I'm interested in that particular problem, third-party subpoenas. What have you seen, and is there any progress being made in terms of uh, 
allowing or facilitating arbitrators to require the production of documents from third parties? You know, I think it's still a difficult area, Buzz. And, and one of the difficulties that I think people don't appreciate as much is that in civil law countries, even if parties are ordered to produce documents, the rules of ethics that bind the lawyers in those countries are such that they're often not allowed to produce documents that could harm their client's case. So, you know, we come from the, the common law perspective, you know, and when you're doing international projects, there's the one issue of do the arbitrators have the power to order the subpoena under the, the statutes and, and there's been some help with that with the US Supreme Court, but the far bigger issue is the practical problem that even when you get a order for a party to produce documents, they may not do so if they think they're going to hurt their client. And in fact, in our big arbitrations against the Republic of Ecuador, we ended up having to go to like public databases to get information that thankfully, because it was a the type of case was available because it wasn't going to get turned over no matter what order was made because of the way that the civil law rules apply to their lawyers. Uh, Buzz, I'd like to comment on Go that, ahead, John, if, if, if I could, because I, th I think there's an interesting philosophical divide between the concept of discovery and trying cases in civil law versus common law countries. In civil law countries, I think the concept basically is let's get this uh, dispute resolved as soon as possible with the least possible cost. Whereas in America, even in Great Britain to some extent, we feel like we need to get to the truth of the matter. And I think that's why we have so much more extensive discovery here on this side of the pond than they do in, uh, in, in Europe because we feel like we've got to turn over every rock, we've got to look at every document in order to make sure that due process, that justice is done. Where I think, although they want due process to be done, I think there's less of a concern for making sure that all of the facts and all the documents and all the information is on the table on the other side, and the emphasis is more to get it done rather than to get it right, as we feel like we need to do here in the U.S. I think that's a legitimate philosophical difference, but I think that forms the uh, foundation for the differences we have in uh, discovery processes. And I think it's really important, Buzz, for U.S. clients and U.S. lawyers and to understand if they're litigating or arbitrating an international case, that there is that huge philosophical difference and, and differences in the rules that apply. This is a trick question. I'm going to warn you in advance. John, you have 30 seconds to tell me why. Why what? Why are, we'll just, we'll pick continental Europeans as an example, are they willing to attempt to resolve a very high stakes dispute with knowing something less than all the facts? Well, it really gets into some uh, interesting um, philosophy. And I don't, I, you know, I certainly don't have time to go into all of that. But I think there's more of a paternalistic approach to uh, leadership and resolving cases in Europe than we have here in the U.S. It's more of a, here in the U.S., we have more of an independent, we can do it better ourselves. We have a better grasp of 
what our case is all about, how we need to try it, how do we need to present it? Whereas I think in Europe, the concept is more the judge, the expert has a much better competency for trying the cases. And that's an extreme. I mean, that's an extreme on both sides. But at the same time, I think that that divide really is somewhat indicative of the reason we have such differences of of approach. That's really fascinating. Uh, Laura, any comments on that? Yeah, I think I have a slightly different perspective. I mean, I don't disagree with with John's points, but I think there's another point, which is because they do not rely on precedent, the nuances in the facts and all the details are not as important to the civil law lawyers because that's not what, they're, they're not trying to distinguish or fit this case into the rubric of the cases that have gone before. And so I think from the civil law perspective, a lot of the facts are just not as germane to their ultimate decision. And of course, talking to a audience of common law trained lawyers, that seems like a very foreign concept, doesn't it? It does, as does the idea that someone would have a document that was directly relevant, that helps your case, and they're not going to turn it over because it hurts their client. I mean, the first time that happened to me, I was stunned. And it made me really rethink how we approach a number of international cases, particularly those involving where they involve civil law opponents. But what we're seeing today is more of a convergence of the civil law and the common law way of uh, arbitrating and trying cases. And frankly, I think it's becoming more Americanized than it is Europeanized as things have evolved, you know, over the last 10 to 20 years. So I think that's good news for Americans who want to get involved in uh, international arbitration. It's probably bad news for the Europeans who would rather, you know, do it the, uh, the way it's been done for centuries over there. But at the same time, I think things are moving, at least on the arbitration realm, in the American direction. I, you know, but Buzz, if I could just jump in, I wonder, though, John, if that's going to continue, because look at the Prague Convention which basically completely does away. It takes a very, a very civil law approach to arbitration. It does away with almost any discovery. And if people start adopting the Prague Convention, I mean, I think the pendulum has started to swing back. I think that arbitration internationally was becoming more Americanized. And I see the Prague Convention as, you know, maybe the pendulum moving backwards. Well, I had a friend who told me that's a nice try, but it's not going to work. And uh, the Prague, for those of you who are not familiar with the Prague Convention, uh, Google it, look it up. I think an American common lawyer will be shocked at the approach that that takes. And the question is whether or not that's going to become the trend. My prediction is that it probably will not. I think it's sort of a last ditch effort on the part of the uh, uh, on, on, on the hardcore Europeans to uh Uh, to keep things the way they uh, have been in the past, but we shall see. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think it actually um, will become the norm, but I wonder if it's going to drag us back in the other direction on on your football field, right? That uh, by staking the ground, you know, on the other side of the end zone, uh, they may drag construction arbitration back a little bit more towards the civil law perspective. Yet to be determined. (laughs) I know John is familiar with this situation. I think we've talked about it, but Several years ago, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada wrote an influential article talking about the death of precedent. 
because uh, the cases were all referred to arbitration. And the point you're making, John, is at least from the European perspective, the heck with precedent anyways. Right. That is more of a theoretical than a uh, practical problem. The reason why I think it is more of a theoretical problem is the fact that most arbitrations, most, in fact, most litigations that I've ever been experienced with turn on the facts rather than the law. And so to the extent that we don't have extensive precedent in arbitral substantive decisions, I don't think it's been a significant disadvantage, but uh, I think the justice was absolutely right. It's uh, much more difficult to maintain a body of precedent, particularly with regard to construction law, when the cases are not reported and when we don't have that uh, readily available precedent to look to. Laura, let me take it a little bit from the theoretical to some of the more practical. What are some of the devices that you use or that you've seen uh, that are effective in um, making the time used in an arbitration as efficient as possible? Well, Beth, I love the chess clock. I think it is a hugely effective tool in making the hearing as efficient as possible. Explain it to our listeners. What is the chess clock? So a chess clock is if you've got, let's say, a week arbitration, and in that week, you're going to get 35, 36 hours of testimony and, and time with the arbitrator after you take out all the breaks and lunches, you would say that each side gets half of that. Now, that could be adjusted based on the number of witnesses and other factors. But for our listeners, if each party gets half of that, that means each party gets 18 hours. And they can spend that 18 hours however they want. When their lawyers are speaking or questioning witnesses, whether they're doing their openings, whether they're putting their direct on or they're cross-examining another witness, that's taking away, eating away their time. And what it forces the parties to do, you know, we had a big arbitration over a dispute involving a, the construction of a gas plant in Chicago a little over two years ago, where we use the chess clock. And, you know, it makes you think, how much time is it going to take me for these different aspects and different witnesses and my experts? And, and where do I want to allocate that time? And it really forces the lawyers to get to the heart of things and really focus on what's material to the outcome in a way that when you're not operating on a chess clock and you can go longer, you don't. So I, I think it's incredibly effective as a tool. In a way, it allows the lawyers to value engineer their own cases instead of the arbitrator having to beat up on the parties to get them to move the case along, you simply give them a time frame. And it's been my experience. I think it's uh, reasonably sure it's been Laura's and most other uh, arbitrators that the parties will work that out. If you give them a time frame, they will find a way to present their case in the most efficient and timely way within the time frame that they've agreed to. John, let me ask you about another potentially time-saving mechanism that I think is the cause of some controversy, and that is dispositive motions. Do you hear them? Do you encourage people to summarize them first and then the panel to decide whether they're appropriate? Have you find those kinds of motions to move the process along? I have seen many more dispositive motions in arbitration, particularly in the last four to five years. 
and I think that's a good thing. I think dispositive motions can be very effective mechanism for saving time and cost in uh, arbitration because there are many issues that come up in, uh, in arbitrations as well as litigation that can be resolved without the presentation of facts, without cross-examination, without parties having to present evidence. And you know, so whenever that issue comes up, I think the arbitrators should look at it very carefully. If necessary, ask the parties to give them additional information about what evidence they would present or what law would be applicable in connection with the motion. And if it looks like that would be a likely avenue for reducing the scope of the arbitration, then I'm, I'm sure the arbitrators would be well served in receiving the motion and going ahead and making a ruling on it. Laura, let me uh, let me ask you to maybe broaden out the discussion a little bit. What's the future as you see it in construction arbitration? And specifically, you know, can we make it better? Can we make it better for the parties as a more efficient and effective dispute resolution mechanism? I think absolutely we can, Buzz. And, uh, you know, I spoke at the Paris Arbitration Week on a, a construction conference where we talked about does construction engineering need value engineering or a complete overhaul? And I think, uh, interestingly, this year of the pandemic where we moved to virtual hearings is going to have a pretty significant impact going forward because being forced to do evidentiary hearings virtually has made arbitrators, institutions, and counsel realize what's possible. And I think going forward, we will see much more use of hybrid hearings. I think people are gonna wanna continue to be in person um, to a certain extent, but I think the early conferences, the procedural conferences will all happen more often virtually going forward. I think that with experts, which can often be very difficult in getting them um, expert schedules aligned, you know, allowing them to testify virtually, even when the other witnesses, fact witnesses are in person. I had a case scheduled to go to an evidentiary hearing in two weeks, and the experts were going to appear by video, even though the uh, parties were going to be appearing in person. So I think the move to hybrid and increased use of video testimony is going to be one of the big changes we see that will improve efficiency. I mean, there's just no reason to fly somebody, you know, across the world to give an hour of testimony. John, based on your experience, where do you see construction arbitration going in the future? I think there could never be more exciting time to be involved in uh, construction dispute resolution than, uh, than today and tomorrow. The construction industry has been like a laboratory in coming up with very creative ways, not only to avoid disputes, but also to resolve disputes. I think more so than probably any other sector of the business community. But at the same time, I think we have to keep in mind that for every um, time-saving or cost-saving measure, uh, for every alternative process that we come up with, there's always going to be a cost-benefit analysis. And I think we need to take that into account. The parties need to take that into account in determining whether or not that's going to be appropriate for the case at hand. So I would say in the end, the great value 
of uh, dispute resolution or alternative dispute resolution is the capacity to choose on behalf of the parties, both the most effective process for a particular dispute and finding the best qualified judges or arbitrators to decide that dispute. In short, I think the greatest benefit of arbitration and ADR is the party's choice. Our guests today have been John Hinchy of the JAMS office in Washington, D.C., and Laura Abrahamson of the JAMS office in Los Angeles, California. Thank you both very much. It's been not only interesting, but very thought-provoking. You have been listening to Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the express written consent of the American Bar Association. For more information about Construction Law Today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, Buzz Tarlow, jtarlow at lawmt.com. Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you for listening and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today.